right, members, the sitting is resumed, and it's time for questions to the Minister of Finance. Tashinam Dunye, Kestini Dun Aregidesh. I can see him, Sir Daniel McCrossan. I call Daniel McCrossan. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Deputy Speaker, question one, please, Minister. My department is committed to creating more jobs for young people in the civil service. To enable younger people and other unrepresented groups to apply for posts, NextHR in my department has led a high-volume open recruitment exercises rather than internal promotion exercises that confined applications to existing civil servants in the grade below the vacancy, which were previously the norm. I recently launched a number of external recruitment campaigns, including one for more than 500 executive officer posts. These campaigns specifically target young people using social media platforms such as Facebook, Instagram and Snapchat, and advertising on digital platforms such as Spotify and DAX, and on radio stations known to appeal to younger markets. Later this month, I will be launching a student placement scheme, which will give over 100 students the opportunity to work across a range of areas in the civil service as well as giving the students an opportunity to develop their skills and experience. It will encourage them to consider the civil service as a potential career path in the future. In addition, work to expand the number of civil service apprenticeships is also ongoing, with two apprentice recruitment exercises for procurement and civil engineering now live. Further civil service apprenticeships are under development. We are also developing a new management trainee scheme aimed at graduates. Thank you, Minister, for the answer to that question. Minister, people in my constituency of West Rome want to know about the Connect 2 regional hub in Oma. Can you, Minister, confirm if it will be open indeed in 2022? Uh, and can you also guarantee that there will be high value jobs for people in the area? And will the Minister also add if there is any consideration given to such a hub for the Straban area? Well, there is a scheduled engagement, uh, and as you correctly identifies, OMA was directed as uh, one of the ten areas being looked at first. And that was based on uh, a number of factors, uh, uh, an assessment of where people were travelling into uh, the uh, into headquarters in Belfast, from uh, an assessment of where workers were actually coming from to, to locate uh, these areas. So they are all moving at different at speeds. Uh, John Patrick, I, I suspect, will be the first one on board. And after that, then they will roll out. I'd be very happy to get them the estimated time frame uh, for OMA. Can I say, in, in terms of relating to the first question, uh, these are jobs so that people who, who can apply, who per, perhaps traditionally didn't apply for constituents such as his own and my own on border areas, uh, where the prospect of driving five days a week into Belfast was off-putting for people. This gives people the opportunity to work a number of days from a regional hub. Uh, and therefore, I think, makes that uh, prospect of that type of career more attractive for people. So they will be at whatever, whatever value uh, the people who uh, get the jobs in the area. What we are providing for is the base to allow them to have a more flexible working approach. And I do think in time that that will change and continue to change the makeup of the civil service, both in terms particularly for women uh, who would struggle uh, with that amount of time uh, uh, travelling in and out, uh, given that the burden uh, of, of responsibility in the home often falls to them, unfortunately, uh, but also for younger people and for people from more peripheral areas who, who traditionally wouldn't have been seen in the civil service. I call Steve Aiken. The Minister for his reply so far. Uh, one of the things that the previous uh, Permanent Secretary of the Department of Finance said before she left was the lack of a fast stream for bringing in high-quality graduates within to the Northern Ireland Civil Service to change that. And in fact, we haven't had a fast-stream programme, I think, now for nearly a decade. Would the Minister say where he's th considering introducing a fast-stream? And if not, why not? 
Well, there is a report, as he will know, the Audit Office report in relation to uh, capability and capacity within the civil service, and one of the suggested responses to that would be the idea of a fast stream to make sure that you get the right people in the right place at the right time. Uh, and I think there is clearly a need for our civil service to be much more agile, uh, to be much more flexible, to be much more representative of the community we uh, all collectively represent and it, it works for. Uh, and so I am open to any of those ideas. I know it is something that the previous permanent secretary uh, was keen on. We are in the process of developing a reform process for the civil service, acting on the back of a number of reports, including that audit office report. Uh, and I think those objectives uh, are ones that we will want to have to the fore. Uh, when we're developing uh, new ideas and new ways of, of, of dealing with civil service in the time ahead. And I thank the Minister for his answer so far and I welcome that information about the regional hubs in OMA. We'll be very welcome to people in OMA and across West Tyrone. Um, can I also ask the Minister to outline what steps he's taken to ensure that job opportunities are um, to ensure there are job opportunities for those furthest from the labour market, please. Well, the civil service as an employer is supporting the Department of Communities' recently launched Job Start scheme, and that is open to all employers and provides paid work placements uh, opportunities for six to nine months for young people aged 16 to 24 uh, who are at risk of long term unemployment. The next HR in my own department is supporting the Department of Communities as they pilot the scheme with a specific focus on people aged 16 to 24 with disabilities in preparation to roll it out across the civil service in due course. So, as well as offering opportunities across departments to young people with disabilities, to propose to broaden the scheme to include other young people at risk of long-term unemployment, such as those leaving the care system. The expansion of a number of apprenticeship schemes in the civil service will also be important in supporting those furthest from the job market and providing an entry route into the civil service. My own department is committed to expanding the number of apprenticeship schemes within the civil service to provide an alternative career entry routes into the civil service and help ensure it is reflective of the society it serves. I call Andrew Muir. Thank you very much, Mr. Deputy Speaker. Um, the Minister has referred to the Northern Ireland Audit Office Capacity and Capability Report, which obviously was recently considered by the Public Accounts Committee. Within that, it also highlights we have got a, an older workforce within the Northern Ireland Civil Service. Is the Minister satisfied all actions are being taken for succession planning and for recruitment for those vacancies so we have a civil service which has the right skills and capacity to go forward? Well, I think the, the report has highlighted a number of areas, and that uh, could well be considered to be one of them. Uh, there is a retirement policy uh, currently at the Civil Service which allows people to partially retire, but to stay and work for a, a potentially an open-ended uh, number of years uh, in that post. Uh, and I've asked people to look at how that is being implemented. Uh, there are legal rights to, to uh, avail of early retirement, but the question of uh, of whether that fits in with the work scheme in departments is something that I think line managers and, and permanent secretaries need to look at again and have asked for some advice in relation to that. So there is a big improvement exercise there. I mean, the, let's not forget the civil service have done remarkable work, uh, particularly over the last year, across a whole range of departments. Uh, uh, but there is identified a need for, as you say, getting the right skills, the right balance. Uh, the right age profile into the civil service, and that's a very significant undertaking. But it's one that we are prepared uh, and, and indeed keen to embrace in the time ahead. And as the department responsibility overall for the civil service, we will be wanting other departments to come along that route with us. I call Jim Allister. The civil service has been without a permanent head now for almost a year, uh, and now we have a proposition of a twin-headed approach. Does the minister think that the absence of a head of the civil service? Uh, has 
diminished the lack of strategic direction and leadership in the civil service? And will the twin-headed approach worsen that or improve it? Well, I, I, I don't think so. Uh, be, be quite honestly, regardless of what strategic direction and approach was being developed within the executive or indeed across the civil service, we were all in response mode this year. So the, the, the priority was responding to the pandemic, getting support to people that needed, getting support to the health service. So it was very much focused on the day-to-day over the last uh, year, 15 months. Uh, it isn't a twin head role uh, that's been developed. It is someone to head up TEO as, a, as a, a distinct department, so that the head of the civil service can have that more strategic approach across the entire range of all of the departments and all the civil servants in the public sector uh, and the arms length bodies. Uh, so I think in many ways it allows that more strategic approach rather than day-to-day management of the executive office, and that's been uh, passed down to a, a newly created permanent secretary post. So uh, I, 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 I think, in my, in my own perspective, I think it will be helpful in terms of, of what he is suggesting is required. Uh, and I go back to the debate this morning, and I'm sure we'll continue the afternoon, in, in terms of getting us into a strategic approach, multi-annual budget programme for government outcome. I think that's the type of work I would want the head of the civil service to be focusing on rather than day-to-day management of the executive office. Call Pam Cameron. Thank you, Mr. Deputy Speaker. Question number two, please. Uh, last concorda, with your permission, I'll answer question two and question twelve together. Multi-year budgets are essential to help plan services not just in health but right across the public sector. The Health Minister and I have both called on the British Government to provide the executive for the multi-year budget. I raised this with Chancellor Rishi Sunak when I was in London last month, and he indicated his intention to announce a multi-year spending review later this year. On this basis, the Executive will shortly begin preparations for its multi-year draft budget. Budgets are agreed by all Ministers, not just the Finance Minister. However, I will be arguing for priority to continue to be given to health, both to assist with the immediate waiting crisis and to fund longer-term transformation. Supplementary for Pam Cameron. Thank you, uh, Mr Deputy Speaker, and I thank the Minister for his uh, response. Does the Minister agree that health will need a high priority in terms of budgetary um, allocations in future to properly address the horrendous um, waiting lists and to deliver the health transformation that is so badly needed, which may mean tightening of the purse strings um, for less important political projects? Well, I think we would. I think the executive has agreed and has agreed uh, for some time now, uh, right back to previous executives and the the adoption of the Bengal report, that we would try and take the politics out of health, that we would have a collective approach across the executive. So, in that sense, it didn't matter who the health minister was; it was a collective executive approach, and we have endeavoured to continue that through very very challenging times. And, and you will see we, we, the health has received over half of the revenue budget available to us. Of course, in a standstill rollover budget situation, that's, that's not what health needs. Health needs quite a lot more just to stand still itself. But we have then been able to supplement that with COVID spending. Uh, and we are having a discussion, uh, the executive, in the not too distant future uh, uh, in relation to the waiting lists themselves to see is there further work we can do in year uh, to try and bring uh, focus and support on what is needed. Now, I have given uh, the Health uh, Minister an additional, uh, I think it is £250 million of COVID money this year for uh, rebuilding the health service coming out of the pandemic, of which I think £40 million of that has been allocated by the Health Department to waiting lists 
so I'm, I'm hopeful that that obviously will help. But what we know in the longer term transformation process, what health needs is recurrent funding, funding which is guaranteed into the future over a multi-year budget scenario, and that's the place that we all want to get to. Colin McGillan, you for Hanya Kest. Minister, for the answer. Um, Minister, does the, this year's budget provide the uh, Health Department with funding to progress, to allow it to progress, much needed transformation? Yes, the, the Executive House prioritised Department of Health and receives, as I said, almost 50 per cent of the budget. Uh, we met all the COVID 19 bids and we set aside funding uh, at the budget pending a health assessment. And we subsequently allocated further funding in the recent May exercise. So, it, allocation provides some £6.4 billion to the Department of Health, including £380 million for COVID, and that is broken down as £25 million for the COVID-19 vaccine deployment, £105 million for ongoing operational response, and £250 million for rebuilding, as I said, £40 million of that health has decided to use for waiting lists. So, uh, I, I think we are all in agreement that uh, what health needs, uh, and, and I think that is the point of the question, is uh, uh, an ability to plan over a number of years, to have certainty in terms of the resource, to have recurrent funding, to employ the people that it needs to see that transformation through uh, in the health system. But the executive is committed to that, uh, and we only hope that you know the arguments that we're making with the Prime Minister during a recent meeting that the Deputy First Minister attended, and with the Chancellor about the British government resourcing the rebuilding of the health service coming out of the pandemic, uh, is, is one which bears fruit for us. Matthew Tool for Anya Kest. Thank you. For a question. Thank you, uh, Deputy Speaker. Um, uh, Minister, we might not get the Treasury uh, multi-year spending review until close to the end of the year. Um, uh, if we are then waiting on a process for a multi-annual budget in the springtime, that will, with the best will in the world, be caught up in our political cycle here, and there will be an election. Would it be better for all the parties here, led by you as Finance Minister and the Health Minister, to agree on what was needed before the spending review and then bring it back to the Assembly immediately afterwards, and then other departments can be filled in afterwards? Well, I'm arguing, uh, the, the, I've spoken to the, the, the budget team in our department and, uh, only just this week to kick-start the discussion as to how we plan and prepare for a multi-year budget. And I think we have to begin that preparation. I'm hopeful that uh, the executive can do that. Uh, over the summer, beginning in early summer, to start to look at the priorities and time ahead. We, we won't know what the funding envelope is, as he correctly says, and we hope that will be earlier in the autumn, but last year it did not come to the 25th of November. Uh, but nonetheless, I think the executive do have to prioritise. I think that is probably a, a, a more useful exercise in the scenario where we are running to the end of the mandate and no party or minister knows whether they'll be back or indeed whether uh, what uh, party may hold any certain portfolio in the executive. So I think it's much more of a blank sheet approach to actually agreeing priorities across the five parties that make up the executive and trying to set a course ahead, which hopefully we then get the budget as part of that comprehensive sweat and review announcement uh, to match our ambition in that regard. Steve Aiken for a question. Indeed. Thank you very much, Aidan Mayor. I thank the Minister for his answer so far. Uh, Minister, bearing in mind that uh, from what you have said from this and looking at multi year budgets and the rest of it, can we now say that the threat of top slicing of the Department of Health's budget is no longer on the table? Well, as, as the, the uh, member knows, I had said that if we were to end up in a scenario where we were paying out the entirety of the victims' payments and we are still in discussion and dispute with Treasury in relation to that, uh, 
that you know one scenario in that if we we had to meet all of those costs was to take it from across all departments that's one way of doing that we have created the headroom for sufficient funds for this year uh, to cover that cost from the executive uh, but of course he will understand that the executive are in agreement that it is not our responsibility to cover that cost now there is a discussion which has been prompted in recent times uh, about the uh, immediate action in relation to waiting lists uh, and that may well result I, I noticed one minister had offered to uh, reduce her own budget uh, in accordance uh, to meet any challenges with the waiting list so if the executive decided to go that approach not that that would be taking money from health, it would be putting money to health. Uh, but what health needs uh, is recurrent funding. They need not just money in this year's budget, they need money going forward to recruit people to tackle the waiting lists and the, the broader transformation issue. I call Paula Bradshaw. Speaker. Um, Minister, one of the reasons why we have such horrendous waiting lists here in Northern Ireland is due to the vacancies. And if we were paying our health and social care staff better, um, I don't think we would have such a big problem. You'll be aware of Unison's campaign for all health and social care staff to receive an immediate £2,000 per year pay increase, and obviously that would need to come from the UK Treasury. I'm just wondering what conversations you've had with them around that. Thank you. Well, we have had broad conversations with about supporting or uh, providing the necessary support to rebuild health. And if the uh, if the Prime Minister is hosting, uh, and he has been discussions across the different devolved areas about what needs to be done in the time ahead, the, I know the Deputy First Minister firmly put that on the agenda with him that it is about rebuilding the health service because the. Uh, if a lesson was needed, and for those of us who complained about those ongoing cuts and cuts and cuts, which saw people leaving their jobs, being asked to work longer hours for less pay, uh, and inevitably that led to, pe led to people leaving the service, or people not wishing to join uh, and a difficulty in, in recruiting, then uh, I think we need to get that uh, sufficient resource into rebuilding, and that will include the issue of wages and, and fair working hours for health staff. I call Alan Chambers for a question. Thank you, Mr. Deputy Speaker. Question three. In December 2016, the Executive agreed to the commencement of the review of the financial process to simplify financial reporting and to better align budgets, estimates and accounts. Since that time, a project team within my department has been working with colleagues across all other departments to implement that review. While it was initially planned that the changes would be implemented in 2021, this was unfortunately delayed, firstly due to the lack of a working assembly and so an inability to progress legislation, and subsequently by the coronavirus pandemic. Implementation is now planned for 2022-23. Legislation is currently in progress to help enable this implementation. The Financial Reporting Departments and Public Bodies Bill is introduced in the Assembly on the 1st of June. Mr. Chambers, for a supplementary. Thank you, Mr. Deputy Speaker, and I thank the Minister for his answer. Uh, can the Minister tell me, in his conversations with the Independent Fiscal Council, what recommendations they have made on reporting standards? And will he also commit to following OECD standards? Thank you. Well, the, the Fiscal Council is, is not long in place, and they, they are engaged in an exercise now in terms of consultation, discussion with uh, various interested parties, and they will soon be with the uh, committee this week, I think, the Financial Committee, Finance Committee this week. Uh, and uh, so they haven't as yet made recommendations to me in relation to the outcome of that, uh, and they also expect them to, uh, 
to consider enhancing further the terms of reference. We give them essentially a, a start-up terms of reference uh, and allow them, as an independent body, to examine the scope of what they want to deal with. So I would expect that uh, reporting uh, on a range of other matters uh, in terms of sustainability of our finances and analysis of all of that uh, is something that they will turn their attention to, but I am not being prescriptive. Uh, if they have their independence and if they have engaged in a consultation exercise, I will expect them to come back to us to tell us what they intend to do and, and how what recommendations they will intend to make in the longer term. Minister, just staying with the Fiscal Council, an issue which I alluded to uh, in the debate prior to lunchtime, and what way do you think that the Fiscal Council itself will improve uh, financial reporting? Well, the, the Council, as I say, it, it, it's yet to fully confirm its own terms of reference and how it will work, but uh, our, our intent in terms of establishment has been to assist, obviously, in scrutinising processes and decisions involved in the executive management of the budget, and that would mean they would be interested in the review of the financial process, how that will work, uh, and how that will assist in changing the reporting to the Assembly and to the wider public, and that is uh, a discussion we have had not just this morning but at many times over uh, budget debates here. Uh, as you know, the Fiscal Council is an independent body, and it is there not for me to say how it may approach this task or how involved they may be in the oversight of this work, but I do want to say I welcome anything which brings transparency to the financial processes. Thank you, Minister, for your answers so far. Minister, there's 500 million in the 21-22 um, uh, allocated uh, funding for COVID funding. What guarantees do you have that the money can be and will be reallocated? Well, I mean, what we've done with the COVID money is we made an initial uh, allocation to health. We waited on health actually to bring forward their assessment for the year before we allocated some of the rest of it, uh, because they had first shout in relation to what their needs were. And once we got that, we then were able to meet the bids from other departments. So departments make bids for this money on the basis that they can spend, uh, and we will monitor that as, year, as the year goes on. If it's not been spent. For the intention that it was, it will have to be resurrendered and then redistributed uh, at a later stage in the year. But I think we proved last year, with a much more significant amount of COVID uh, funding, that the department, uh, it's our department itself, and all of the other departments were able to spend out that money uh, about before the end of the financial year. Something I think that there was quite a degree of scepticism around this chamber, maybe on January or February, that that would be achieved. But nonetheless, it was. So I, I don't anticipate uh, that money not being spent in, in some useful fashion in order to assist us in our COVID response. Call Paula Bradshaw for a question. Number four, please. A civil service-wide survey has indicated that the respondents in most departments have made financial savings as a result of working from home, for example, as a result of reductions in travel costs. Nevertheless, employees who incur additional costs may be reimbursed by the civil service for costs incurred in the making of business calls on a personal mobile phone or home landline, additional home broadband costs, whether that's installation or increased data charges required solely for work pro uh, purposes, desk costs up to £100, IT equipment and chairs already provided by the civil service. The staff have that have incurred additional costs can also claim tax relief in line with HMRC rules. HMRC publishes guidance on how to claim tax relief on any home working expenses incurred that are not reimbursed by the employer. 
In October 2020, they set up a new dedicated working from home microservice, recognising that the tax years 2021 and 2122 are different and making claiming the tax relief quick and easy. Paula Bradshaw for a supplementary. Um, thank you, thank you, Minister, for, for your response. I had been contacted about this, so I'm, I'm conscious that maybe the communication around this maybe isn't as, as clear um, as you would like in, in the department. But just um, to echo what you'd said there earlier, um, that many of them have been working so hard during the pandemic, and I'm just wondering, is there any special recognition scheme that you're going to introduce for civil servants? Thank you. Well, the executive did agree uh, to support uh, a recognition scheme of £500 payment for healthcare staff, uh, and we have endeavoured, in terms of our pay awards for civil servants, uh, not to follow the, the model that was uh, adopted in London, uh, where they went for a, a, a 1% pay, pay increase for healthcare staff and a freeze for all other public servants. So we have. Uh, brought forward uh, an increase uh, over two years for, for civil service. Now, of course, we are on a very fixed budget, uh, and that is very challenging across all other departments. We have to balance what we could give in terms of the pay increase uh, with what was affordable across the departments and other demands on public services. So, uh, we are keen to support where we can uh, our public service. We do recognise the efforts that have been made, in particular over the last year. Uh, and we have provided an enormous amount of support in terms of IT support uh, to people. Uh, and the general feedback in terms of that blend of working from home and coming in has been very, very positive, uh, but what, and sickness levels have dropped and productivity has gone up, but we want to ensure that, that people do have a good working experience and feel uh, you know, well supported, both financially and in terms of whatever measures, other measures we can. And if there is a communication issue in relation to that, I am very happy uh, to raise that with the Department and make sure that is looked at. I thank the Minister for his answer so far. Minister, can you just clarify um, where employees have incurred extra costs, can find out more about what support is available to them? Yes, uh, as I said to the previous questioner, if that, that is an issue, I'm certainly happy. But the, the guidance in relation to homework and expenses uh, for civil service staff is available on the COVID 19 hub on the Finance uh, Department's website. And so I would suggest that people go there in the first instance. But if we are finding uh, that there, uh, there is some breakdown in that communication, I am happy to have that looked at to make sure that people do understand what they would be entitled to. Thank you, Minister, for your answer so far. And we do know that uh, this blended and flexible working is particularly welcome for those that have young families or caring responsibilities. Can I ask the Minister what he uh, is doing to uh, close that gender gap um, w among the civil servants? Well, I, I appreciate the member might not have been in earlier, but we did have a fairly lengthy discussion in the first question about uh, reform to civil service, about attracting new people, about making uh, the working experience uh, such that it, it does, uh, you know, with, throughout the connect hubs that we're talking about, where people who live in peripheral areas, such as Derry and uh, you know, in the border areas, uh, who, who would otherwise would not have been attracted. Uh, to go on five days a week to work from a headquarters in Belfast, and, and that particularly, uh, I think, is a disincentive for women who, who bear the burden, unfortunately, of, of, uh, of managing uh, family life, uh, that it can become more attractive if we present those different options. So I think we are very conscious uh, that there are a number of steps which have told us that the civil service 
uh, while it has been working uh, and, and performed heroically over the last year, uh, certainly, uh, that there is need for substantial change and uh, a greater diversity in terms of gender, uh, in terms of age profile uh, and disability, uh, ethnic minorities. There, there certainly is much room for improvement, and we have a range of measures which we hope to bring forward to try and achieve that. I call Andrew Muir for a question. Question five, Mr. Deputy Speaker. A report by Deloitte in 2007 estimated the cost of the division at £1.5 billion. In 2016, the University of Ulster Economic Policy Centre estimated the cost of division at a lower figure, between £403 million and £833 million. The report outlined that the significant comp- complexity in the cost of delivering services in the North, costs that cannot solely be attributed to, to, in the context of a divided society. For example, delivering services in such a small region means we don't benefit from economies of scale. The report also found that while on average the cost of public service provision tends to be higher than in Britain, across most areas the costs here typically fall within the range of costs identified in other regions. The one exception to this is the cost of policing. Here for a supplementary. Thank you very much, Mr Deputy Speaker, and thank the Minister for his response. As the Minister is aware, during a multitude of budget debates, it is often mentioned the need to provide much more finance to deal with our witness crisis and for other services, also the need to consider revenue raising. Does the Minister not agree that none of those arguments carry any weight or credibility until we are prepared to look at our own finances and tackle the cost of division in Northern Ireland? Well, as I said, it isn't, uh, it isn't a straightforward issue. Uh, there is a complexity in that, and attributing what has actually caused division. And, and of course, uh, one of the ways that we, we can, uh, I think, deal with it is to deal with the division itself, uh, is to try and, and cut down and, and reduce down the, the uh, divisions in society to reduce the policing costs associated with that, which is, is, is significantly higher here than in other areas, uh, and to try and encourage uh, that reconciliation process that, that is necessary. So uh, it is, uh, uh, I would say, an ambition to try and reduce that, but it's an ambition for society, not just for the public purse, albeit it has that knock-on effect into the public purse. Uh, and we will obviously strive to do that as best we can. The, Executive Office lead on some of these reconciliation measures, and we have been challenged this year in terms of providing the level of support that they have wanted uh, to go into those uh, pr- programmes and projects. Uh, but nonetheless, I think it is incumbent on all of us to try and heal division society and promote reconciliation and thereby reduce the cost that it takes to, to sustain division. That ends the period for listed questions. We will now move to 15 minutes of topical questions. I guess Aaron Sir Jerry Carroll for Newcash. I call Jerry Carroll. Thanks, Deputy Speaker. Minister, can you give uh, any update on any plans to review, change, or amend procurement legislation to include human rights clauses? Well, we are looking at a range of measures, as he will know probably from listening to me in previous uh, appearances in the chamber. We did reconstitute the procurement board. Uh, we brought on practitioners, uh, including people uh, from the social enterprise sector as well. Uh, we have been engaged with the community and voluntary sector. There is a sector within my department which look at ethical procurement, uh, and we will be seeking advice from them. And one of the early, uh, one of the early uh, objectives we have set ourselves, and actually the procurement board will meet tomorrow to consider a paper on this, is around social value. And social value isn't just about that. Job creation is about environmental impact. It's about ethical uh, procurement. It's about human rights uh, in the supply chain. And 
the further you get from where we are, the more difficult some of those things are to measure in terms of companies who supply companies who supply companies and eventually ends up with us. Uh, but nonetheless, there is an attempt to, to strive uh, and to improve uh, not just in what we do in terms of value for money, that's important, but also we have responsibility as, as a, an organisation that spends £3 billion a year to make sure that when we're procuring, we're doing so in a way which does support human rights and does support uh, ethical procurements, environmental objectives and social value objectives. Jerry Carroll, supplementary question for Jerry Carroll. Thank the Minister for his answer. Would he agree with me that it's not only immoral for the executive and departments to take contracts or services from states with terrible human rights records and breaches, but he will work to end that practice uh, by changing the legislation? Is that type of uh, area included in the social value uh, method that he talked about? Uh, we will look to legislation to underpin social value. Uh, we are trying to get the procurement policy right in the first instance and get the Part of the change that we made in terms of the procurement board was to make the adoption of policy and executive adoption, so that gives it an imprimatur right across all departments. Uh, but certainly, I know from our own department's objectives, uh, we want to be advising uh, other departments on ethical procurement. Uh, as I said, the further you get down the supply chain across the world, sometimes it's more difficult it is to get accurate information, but that shouldn't stop us trying. Uh, and, and where we uh, have a sense that either f companies themselves or countries uh, are involved in, in anti-human rights or unethical behaviour, then I think we should be considering that very strongly in terms of our uh, willingness to spend money on their products. I call Roy Beggs for a question. During the, the past year, there has been new working practice, people working from home. Uh, so my question to the Minister is, what assessment has there been of the effectiveness of civil servants when working from home? and the corresponding reduction in office requirements where there is potential for savings? Well, I think the, the member hits on what, is, uh, what was a developing question, but uh, like a lot of other things, the pandemic has accelerated that on somewhat, uh, because what became, uh, if you like, a, a, a growing practice then became a necessity for a period of time, and that obviously has given us an opportunity. There has been, uh, as I referred to in a previous question, uh, an assessment of the civil services survey carried out in terms of people uh, uh, on their working from home experience, the costs associated. It has been a very positive response. Uh, people have enjoyed that ability to work from home. The, uh, I can't speak for all departments, but there is a broad sense that sickness levels have gone down and productivity has certainly gone up in certain areas. Uh, and we are looking to the, what is called a more blended model uh, of people working, a mixture of working from home, availability of those connect hubs around uh, the north that I have talked about at previous times. Uh, and so we can have a different, that will have the effect of reducing travel time, but also reducing the carbon footprint. In terms of the civil services state, uh, then we have to consider the knock-on effect of that. That doesn't mean wholesale uh, shutting up of offices in Belfast, but I think it does allow us to consider how we rationalise the estate. And the cost of the estate for each department is a very significant cost, and I would hope there would be savings in the longer term in relation to that. So I think this is a, an exercise that we have, have, are well into now. We need to assess the impact on the estate. We need to uh, make that assessment going forward in terms of what the office requirements will be. Uh, and to try and minimise the cost so that that money can be used for public services instead. Mr Beggs, first supplementary. With, with that change in working practice, there has been a reduction in commuting levels and the pressures on our roads. So my question to the Minister is, will there be a review of all new roads development 
to, to ensure that it is justified by the actual traffic levels that are developing, uh, and also enable perhaps additional monies to be directed towards green infrastructure in our towns and cities to allow people to walk and cycle more often to their work. Well, that would be a question, I suppose, for the Minister for Infrastructure, but uh, I'm sure, as with, uh, he will know, with any significant road building exercise, uh, a business case is based on the volume of traffic, uh, volumes of traffic, and if that uh, does reduce and if that pattern is the same, I have to say, it, while traffic is not back up anywhere near the levels it was pre-pandemic, you certainly, as, as people like myself who commute in to here on a daily basis, do notice uh, a significant increase in traffic over the last uh, number of months. Uh, but I think the objective in changing the working arrangements is to try and reduce travel, reduce travel time, the carbon footprint. We, of course, should be encouraging more people onto public transport uh, and investment in that green infrastructure. He says, I think, does point to a better way forward into the future. I call Joanne Bunting for a question. Thank you, Mr. Deputy Speaker. Could I ask the Minister what engagement his department has had with the Department of Communities uh, to ensure there is necessary funding available to progress the uh, sub-regional stadia programme, please? Well, we have uh, discussed with the uh, Department of Communities in, in relation to the budget uh, process uh, pre-Christmas when we were uh, waiting, and then post when we set the initial draft budget as to what the Department's requirements were. Uh, of course, in a standstill budget scenario, uh, and particularly a Department of the Communities, which is a big department with a lot of staff and costs attached to it, then that in effect means a reduction. So while we have had some increase in our capital budget, uh, and we did uh, give some departments an increase in the capital budget, uh, I'm sure not all got everything they had wanted or, or would like to have brought forward. Uh, and I, the specifics of the sub-regional stadia programme, uh, I wouldn't have the figures as to what was bid for or what was received. It may be a matter for the que uh, question for the Department for the Communities themselves. But certainly there was an increased capital budget this time, and it's obviously up to the departments then when they receive that to prioritise it accordingly. John Bunting for a supplementary. Thank you, sir. And could I just ask then, on the back of that, the Minister will be aware that local football clubs have now been waiting some 10 years uh, to see the benefits of this programme. And given that sport plays a huge role in the general well-being of our whole society, does he agree that it's time to make um, vital capital investment into sport and in so doing benefit the construction sector? Yes, well, I'm all for, and that's why, I, I, with uh, overall disappointment, I suppose, in terms of the budget allocation we got, there was some ray of hope in terms of the capital allocation was an improvement, uh, and I am all for putting that into sport. I am a sports fan myself. I represented some of those clubs in the couple of years when the executive was not functioning and trying to get access to the sub-regional uh, fund, uh, and there was difficulty in distributing them because uh, permanent secretaries were not prepared to take decisions they thought ministers should take. So uh, I would love to see that out on the ground. I know the benefits that that brings. Uh, not just in terms of construction jobs, but the much broader benefit to the community and to younger people in particular from access to and involvement in sport. So uh, I'd be a keen supporter of all of that, and I hope uh, that the department uh, has sufficient to be able to invest all that it would want to invest in supporting sport in the time ahead. Members, in his place for the next question, I guess next year I'm sir, John O'Dowd for Newcastle. I call John O'Dowd. Uh, thank you, uh, Laskin Corley, and thank the Minister for his answers thus far. Minister, the grants provided to businesses over this last 15 months has been a lifeline not only to the businesses but to their employees in keeping uh, roofs overhead and paying bills, etc. Though some of the schemes 
judge businesses, regardless of the number of premises they had, as a business with a single premise. Is there any way that the executive or your department can offer further support to those businesses? Well, we've had quite a number of engagements with what are known as the multiples, uh, and it has been very difficult. It's proved difficult in other jurisdictions as well, and uh, different, uh, different administrations have come up with different schemes uh, to try and provide support uh, for them. Uh, and it wasn't possible in the last scheme, as we were rolling it out, with the time frame involved, to, to, uh, because at, particularly at the lower level uh, of, of, uh, of, of premises, uh, it is quite complex to differentiate them from other schemes. They don't all come under just the one banner. Uh, you know, they're not all the same business franchise. They're, they're kind of multiples within that again. So, what we have done is we have uh, asked LPS to go off and look at the possibility of doing a scheme uh, later in the year once we get clear of all of the schemes that LPS are currently running uh, to devise a scheme. We will be talking to the representatives from the multiples in the next week or so uh, to advise them of what we intend to do, and I am hopeful that we will be able to devise a scheme which provides some level of support to them, because they are one of the, the groups that, that, while they have got support for one business premise, obviously with, uh, with owning a range, then they have not got support for the rest. So they are one of the groups in that sense that have been left out, uh, and we are determined to try and do something, if we can, to support them. John O'Dowd, supplementary question for John O'Dowd. Uh, thank you. That will be very welcome news to those affected, and the ten and twenty-five thousand pound grants that have been announced about hopefully being issued over this month to businesses who also missed out on some of the grants will also be very welcome. But there is another group, though, despite the economic downturn, there were still businesses opening up within this last year. Those businesses may not have been able to avail of any of those grants. Will there be support coming forward for those businesses? Well, the people who are currently availing of the top-up grants, uh, the 5,000 and the 10,000 grants, uh, were people who were able to open, but it was a recognition that footfall had been down. So, you know, the shops that operated dependent on office workers in the vicinity to, you know, keep them ticking over, uh, for instance. Uh, and so, those grants were specifically for those people who didn't get LRS. Or the Department for Economy similar scheme uh, that those ten, uh, five and ten thousand pound top up grants uh, are made available to them. Of course, uh, all of the retail and hospitality sector and quite a lot of other sectors will uh, enjoy another full year's rates holiday as well. And then we have the economic package, which has been supported for the Department of the Economy, including the high street voucher, which will hopefully have uh, a stimulant effect in terms of people shopping uh, in local retail in particular. Uh, so there are a range of measures, and we recognise that all of that will not, you know, and never could replace lost earnings for people over the course of this pandemic. But what it is is trying to use the finances we got, limited as they were, to try and target those as effectively as we could, to try and keep people alive in the time ahead so that they can get back to full trading uh, and recover their businesses. Aram Sir Matthew Toole for Hanya Kesht. I call Matthew Toole for a question. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr Deputy Speaker. Uh, can the Finance Minister indicate uh, when he expects to update the House on the term of re terms of reference of the Fiscal Commission? Well, the Commission, like the Council, is out off doing some of its work at the moment, and I am sure he and others on the Finance Committee will be engaging with them in due course. As he acknowledged, I think, in one of his earlier contributions, they are, there are some uh, very experienced and able people involved in both the Council and the Commission. Uh, and what we wanted to be doing, particularly in relation to the Council, which is an ongoing remit in terms of reporting, uh, but what we wanted to do in both of them was to give them the space 
to do their engagements, to establish their own independence, so that they weren't uh, just becoming a tool of the department to do our bidding. Uh, and, to, and I think he'll, he'll know with the people that are involved in it that that will not be the case. So uh, I look forward to them coming back to us with their initial findings. Uh, the, the time frame that we have given them in terms of providing a report was, is the end of the year. It will be for an incoming executive to act on, uh, I would imagine, but I think it will inform a debate which brings us beyond as he would see the, the annual budget cycle and, and that into you know, what the future holds and what uh, opportunities are for us in terms of raising our own revenue. Thank you, Mr um, Deputy Speaker. Uh, can the Minister confirm that when the Fiscal Commission uh, formally respond to him that their findings will be published and laid in the Assembly, i.e. there won't be a report that goes to the Executive and gets has to get on an executive agenda, but that will be laid in public and debated here in the Assembly? Well, my intention about creating a fiscal commission, and, and some people were, were not hugely warm to the idea of it, uh, it's, it's an exercise that both Scotland and Wales have gone through, and I think a debate and an informed discussion that, such as that is beneficial to us all. But my intention in relation to that was to assist in a public debate, a debate in this Assembly, a debate outside this Assembly. So I would want, obviously, to make sure that any report that they produce is available to this Assembly and to the public, uh, so we can have a proper and informed debate in the time ahead. We have time for a brief question from Paula Bradley. Mr Deputy Speaker, can I ask you, then, Minister, um, what discussions you have had, of any, with the Minister of Infrastructure in relation to rolling support for the taxi, bus and coach industry, um, just to counteract the ongoing challenges they are going through while we build up public confidence? Well, the member will know that, uh, particularly in the, uh, that there was some uh, financial support offered up specifically for those projects, and there was quite a bit of wrangling between a couple of departments as to who had a responsibility for all of this. Uh, and when eventually infrastructure uh, stepped up to take that responsibility, there was finance made available. I, th I think not all of it was used, in certain in relation to coaches. Uh, but we did uh, insist at the end of the financial year we had additional COVID money, and we tried to get departments to come back in where they felt more money could be used to, to bid for more. Uh, but that wasn't the case from the Department for Infrastructure in relation to that. So uh, I am happy to discuss at any time uh, if there is additional support required. We have allocated most of the COVID money that we have available to us. Uh, we are not expecting any more to be made available, unlike last year, where we received updated tranches over the course of the year. But if any is not used and surrendered, uh, or if more uh, is made available to us, I am very happy to look at any uh, urgent schemes that a minister might think important to tap into that. That concludes topical questions. If members just take their ease while we change to the next item of business, that is the Budget Bill.